0: Catch the crystal globules, catch em, bottle em up, cork em tight, put sealing wax on the top, seal em with a cupid, label em best quality and stow em away in the 14 bin with a bar of iron on top to keep the thunder off. I have estates, ma'am, jewels, lighthouses, fish ponds, a whalery of my own in the North Sea and several oyster beds of great profit in the Pacific Ocean. If you bless me with your hand and heart, you can apply to the Lord Chancellor or call up the military if necessary. Sending my toothpick to the Commander-in-Chief will be sufficient. And so clear the house of my enemies before the ceremony is performed. And after that, love, bliss and rapture. Rapture, love and bliss be mine, <laughs> be mine. <laughs>
1: GoonPod. Uh, just before we start, I'd just like to say uh, I woke up this morning uh, to uh, a text from a friend who um, has been having a little bit of difficulty recently, uh, but it seems like things are going in the right direction for him, which is which is fantastic. Um, but he, he texted me to, to give me an update, and um, he, he rounded off the text by saying he was listening to the Kippid Hearing Gang um, to keep his spirits up. Uh, So it just goes to show that the goons can, even to this day, give people the fill-up they need. Uh, So about a year ago, I had uh, the sellers expert and friend of the show, Mark Cousins, on to talk about uh, Peter Sellers' very early career on the wireless, on the radio, Um, and we mainly focused on, well, we did focus on the 40s, really, Uh, I guess 48 up to to 50, because he packed a hell of a lot into that that short period of time. Mark's come back to talk about Peter Sellers on the radio in the 1950s, this time. Um, so I hope you enjoy the conversation. So Mark, th- thank you for joining me again. Pleasure. Um, last time we were talking, it was to discuss the very prolific radio career of Peter Sellers in the, well, late 40s. And we the cutoff point, I think, was around about the start of the goon show wasn't it and then yes we're, today we're going to talk about his radio appearances in the 50s excluding the goon show more or less
2: that's right yes um it was interesting because he was uh and many people know that um he was appearing in the goon show by this time and raise a laugh um mm. in parallel and he continued to do that for quite a long time so by the end of um, 1951 yeah, Razor Laugh was uh, into its third series, and he'd been in it right from the beginning. But he was also appearing in lots of other uh, stuff, mostly variety shows of one sort or another. And I have to say, from this distance, a lot of these variety shows, not only are they dated to us, but also the format's very or fairly similar. So you get a lot of different acts appearing, musical, comedy and a whole lot of stuff like that. And he appeared a lot in um, Workers' Playtime, Hmm. Um, which, for those people who don't know, was, was again, it was another variety show, but this time they went around the countryside, um, appearing in staff canteens in the many factories and office buildings all over the country, Um, which was something... I can't remember when it started, but I think it started during or before the war, so it had been running a long time. Mm-hmm. So, so he appeared in that. And then at the end of 51, he um, appeared in um, Henry Hall's Guest Night, which, again, uh, band leader, Henry Hall, same kind of thing, really. He'd have guests, um, variety guests, and the whole thing centred around uh, Henry Hall's band. Yeah, um, he, he actually appeared in nine editions of that show over the years. Um So then rolling into 1952, by that time, the second series of The Goon Show had begun, and and Sellers was busy, with again, with Razor Laugh, and you'll hear me say this a lot, because obviously those two shows took up a lot of his time. Yeah. Um, As well as more editions of Worker's Playtime. He made more than 25 appearances over the years, between 49 and 56. So it was a big thing for him... Because obviously it filled the gap between doing other things, and it was less of a commitment. These were lots and lots of one-offs. Um,
1: and and so for these, so did you say up to fifty-six, he was appearing on workers' playtime?
2: Yes. So yes.
1: obviously he'd have to change his material each week he appeared. Yes. So who was who was providing that material? Do you know?
2: Well, this is this is always a bit of a puzzle with with sellers, but I don't think it's unique. I mean, he obviously et up radio material. Mm. And stage material, and it's very difficult to work out who wrote what. I mean, we can get we get a few clues, and I'm sure that people like Larry Stevens um, would have written material for him. Mm. And I know that Bob Monkhouse wrote quite a bit. Um, okay, uh, but it's actually very hard to say who wrote what. I don't think Spike wrote much for him. I mean, again, you can usually tell. Uh, something that's written by Milligan because of the style of it. I yeah, mean, it's yeah. just yeah. much of the time it's quite unique. Um, and any recordings exist, that exist, which there aren't that many, don't sort of scream out Spike Milligan to you. Mm. Um, but I think Bob Monkhouse was very good, and he certainly pastiched um, some of Milligan's writing when he did little goon routines for sellers to play all of the characters, which he did on a few occasions oh, in right. the 50s on the radio.
1: OK, Um
2: so he would play not just his own characters, he would he would obviously play people like Bloodnock and Henry Crun and Bluebottle, of course, but he would do echoes as well. So he'd have about four or five characters in a little five-minute sketch um, written by Bob Monkhouse.
1: OK, uh, OK. Similar to people will be familiar with the MacReaky Rising of 74 yes. episode of the Gingles, yeah. where where Sellers did all Spike's parts as well.
2: Y- yes, yes. But, um, so as I say, a lot of these sort of pastiche things, I think were written by um, Bob Monkhouse, but it's very hard to say. I'm sure there were probably other people in associated London scripts. I can imagine sort of sellers trawling around the offices Mm, (laughs) saying, you know, have you got any bits for me? But I think it was a a sort of common thing um, amongst all variety artists, because most of them weren't writers, Frankie Howard, and they were always looking for something different, something new. And whilst on stage, you could probably use the same material again and again and again and get away with it. On the radio, you couldn't really. Um, no. but having said that, you know, as as we know from other sources, that Sellers wasn't very keen on repeating himself much anyway. Yeah. So he would probably eat up even more material than most. Do you, Do you think he would have tried to write his own material himself, or? Well, I know his father wrote a few bits and pieces mm. for him in the early days. Mm. Um, I doubt it. It's more likely that he would have got a script from somebody and altered it and added a bit. I mean, it's because it's a much easier thing. We can all do that to some extent. You yeah, can, you yeah. can, you can say, "Oh well, no, I think he should say this," or you know, his impersonation or whatever he was doing would suggest something okay. else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. um, Mira Norden wrote for him quite a bit too. Okay. So but yeah, workers playtime. I noticed um, you know, when you were talking about the Parkinson show, he mentions work workers play on, mm. with with some affection, actually. And um, and and famously the Spirella Corset factory, <laughs> yeah. which of course i made it my business when i was doing research to trawl the radio times and although there were plenty of adverts for corsets um there was no mention of the spirella corset factory in any of the editions of workers playtime that i came across right um, <laughs> that's not to say he didn't appear there uh, as i said before you know quite often these places wouldn't necessarily be documented so yeah, mm. Um, mm. yeah. but but interestingly i mean quite quite a big operation <laughs> quite a big operation the spirella corset factory and they had a marvellous Ballroom in um, in Letchworth, which is probably where he appeared, um, and it's all still there. Um, I think it's it's used for other things now. The company doesn't exist anymore, yeah. but the building is preserved and the ballroom, I think, is still there. So but
1: you mean that the market for corsets has dried up?
2: <laughs> I think it's shrunk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he he appeared fifty two. He appeared in another edition of Henry Hall's Guest Night. Um, hmm. But um, in the meantime, of course. Um, the goons in '52, they they were on tour to some extent, but Sellers wasn't really involved in it because he was too busy doing all this other stuff. Um, although he did make time, of course, in April '52 to appear with them in Down Among the Z Men. I would like to
0: remind you, gentlemen, that one of the world's most famous spies was a woman, Mata Hari. She was a particularly clever woman, very very beautiful, a singer, if you remember who by showing sympathy and using all her feminine allure, got young soldiers under her spell. They believed her to be their friend and from them, she got their secrets. Have we a Matahari amongst us? Is there a woman spy on this camp?
1: What's your opinion of that film?
2: Well, it's it's very, you probably, I mean, most people probably have the same problem with all these things and that is separating the joy of seeing these people in their youth um, and, and, and appearing, doing anything, and then the entertainment value of what they're in. And yes. I think, you know, it's seriously dated. There are some good bits in it. I haven't watched it for a long time. But it's just lovely to see them at that point in their career. Uh,
0: yeah.
2: So not the sort of thing you'd be putting on, you know, on a, on a wet Friday afternoon to, to provide you with entertainment or something. Um, but enjoyable on the level of just seeing the goons in 52.
1: Well, as with Benteen, of course.
2: Yeah, so so seeing that and also London Entertains, um, it's a real treat to see all that. Well, he was in a lot of other people's series. He wasn't just appearing in Worker's Playtime and stuff. He, he would turn up in things like Up the Pole, which was a very um, hugely popular uh, radio series starring uh, Jimmy Jewell and Ben Warris. Hmm. Um, and he worked with them on stage as well and sometimes in his act he would do the whole cast which he did from time to time with a number of radio shows he would take on the whole cast which included claude dampier and john Pertwee, and he would imitate all of them right you know meanwhile he's sort of he's on the road as well he's in blackpool and aberdeen and liverpool and cardiff and then in October '52, um it's believed that he auditioned for what was hoped to be a new comedy series called Vacant Lot, written by Larry Stevens, uh, which I know you've talked about before. Yeah. It's not clear whether he auditioned or not, it, uh, but I think he probably might have done, because it wasn't the only thing he was auditioning for, because there was also a pilot in November for something called Foursome um, nobody knows much about. He did a pilot um, with John Pertwee which obviously they had an idea of turning into a series. Oh, OK. Um, but that that never happened either. And that was the following month after Vacant Lot. Hmm. But it's, it's puzzling because it's not like he didn't have enough to do.
1: <laughs> Knowing so much about Sellers as you do, do you think it was the pursuit of money or just his natural inclination was to work as much as he could and try and get himself known?
2: Yeah, I think... I don't think the pursuit of money came till later. I mm. think it was more a question of having made it to the BBC in 48, he was determined to carry on. And, of course, lots of um, performers are insecure. So you really don't want to be turning stuff down. Um, and so he just kept working at a phenomenal rate. And at the, in these days, anyway, it seems like he wasn't saying no to anything, really. Okay. Um And some of it, to be fair also, you know, he was very talented, but some of it must have been easy money too. And I think he he always, I think, in the back of his mind had this thought of wanting to get into movies and it increased um, as he became more established on the radio and then on stage. Um, And I think it was all seen as a route towards that as far as he was concerned. So. whilst he enjoyed radio when he was doing it i don't think it was really the ultimate goal and a goal and 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 stage performance definitely wasn't although he did it so by 53 it was pretty much the, the same sort of beginning as to 53 as it was to 52 he was in um series four of razor laugh um and by the end of the year he already notched up 188 appearances in razor laugh With and then another series, Series 5, started in October. So it was all go as far as that was concerned. But his other radio work was starting to tail off. He was still on the radio, and, I mean, mean, if anything, there was an increase in his appearances as an interviewee because by now people were starting to know who Peter Sellers was and wanted to know more about it, and he obviously had things to plug... Or well, he's starting to have things to plug So, But he was, he was appearing in things called, Like Music Hall Variety Playhouse The Show Band Show Henry Hall's Guest Night And of course Worker's Playtime still um, But he was already starting To dip, like other performers Dip his toes into the world of television And then 53 was coronation year And just before the coronation He spent more time Two weeks actually At the London Palladium Um, supporting Carrie Fisher's father, Eddie Fisher, who was a singer. Right. Um, He appeared at the London Palladium quite a lot, actually, from very early on. His first appearance was in 49, and I can't remember the number, but he appeared there about 11 or 12 times um, Hmm. over the course of his career, ranging from a week uh, to doing a full pantomime there for about two or three months. Okay. So it was almost like he was ticking things off as well. Oh, I've done this and I've done that now. I need to do this and I need to do that. So Panto was one thing, um, but between June and September '53, he was on stage at Southsea, his his place of birth, mm. and he was doing an End of the Pier show for the one and only time in his career. A snatch of the show was actually broadcast, but doesn't exist anymore. Oh, right. Uh, which is a great shame. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't, again, it was one of those things It was written by somebody else, He was one of a cast. He wasn't just appearing, you know, doing a solo thing. So it was very different uh, to anything else he did. It was sketch show, a sketch show type comedy, two shows a night, uh, six nights a week, quite busy. There was one sketch that was written by Milligan uh, in all that, which was called Waterloo. He's he uh, he's Napoleon at Waterloo in that. Okay. But of course, then you know. as soon as all that finished he's back on the the trail again of the goon show and, um, and more a more razor laugh but now he's doing a bit more film work so this is where we hear him in malaga and beat the devil doing voiceovers mm.
1: um
2: desperate to get into films but now he's making his first record with george martin as well jacker and the flying yeah. saucers yeah on and on went jacker and Duncan.
0: Suddenly, a hairy-tailed comet came herring through the sky, madly sounding his space horn. And seeing Jack a space scooter, he skidded to a standstill. Whoo! is that as fast as you can go? I have never seen anything quite so slow. All right, all right, if you think you're so bright. You see that nebula just on your right? We'll race you around it and we'll see who's slow. Get ready. (coughs) And the comet cried, Go! It was a very close race, and right at the end, they tore neck and neck round the final bend. Then Dunker leapt forward as they cleared the last bunker, and the space scooter won by just half a Dunker. And the hairy-tailed comet, who was amazed, presented Dunker with a space horn for first prize. And gave Jacker a second prize, a star gun, for shooting off shooting stars. Thank you. Said Jacka and Said Dunker.
2: Yet another busy year. And that's really, you know, 53, you could argue the Goon Show hadn't really gotten in into its stride yet. But obviously, he's still doing that. You know, drifting into 54 and doing more of the Goon Show and Raise a Laugh. Um, but now he's also filming Orders or Orders.
1: Well, um, yeah, because 54, I think, was an important year. Because 54, was that the year that he quit Raise a Laugh?
2: yes it is yes okay. um yeah having said that he quit raise a laugh um but in november um ted ray had a new series <laughs> called ted ray time that's which right. was the same thing different format and he was in that too right <laughs> <laughs> okay well because 54 was the year
1: of the fifth series of the goon show which is the that from that point that's the goon show that people today know and love Really,
2: that's right, and that's really when it got into its stride. I think. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there were obviously good shows and stuff before that, but it really got into its stride in in '54, definitely. Yeah have we have we jumped over have we skipped over
1: Bumblethorpe?
2: Um, we might have done, <laughs> <laughs> because well, I, I can't. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't think I've got it in front of me, but yeah, Bumblethorpe's an interesting one because, from memory, I think he was. Uh, was he in the pilot? Well, the, the, uh, the, the story behind Bumblethorpe was basically one of those situations where uh, I think it was Valentine Dial who was supposed to be in it went missing and yeah. it's a bit similar you know it's a bit similar in some ways to the story of Kenneth Williams not being in uh, Hancock's half hour and so in steps Peter Sellers this was a bit different though because um, Valentine Dial just went missing and if if my memory serves me correctly i think dennis main wilson once again was the producer okay and sellers got called on just because he was there and reliable yeah yeah. and yeah. could and could sort of step into almost anything because of his ability to adopt a character and do whatever you wanted he was seen as a safe pair of hands yeah um and um so i think that's how that happened right
1: because um, Spike, Spike was in at least one episode of Bumblethorpe as well.
2: Yeah, that's right. It's so it's such a shame that none of these things, you know, still exist. But then, as we know from the, the marriage bureau turning up, um, you can never say never. No. Um, no. And, you know, no one was more excited to hear that than, than me. I mean, but having said that, I do have a long shopping list of other <laughs> other sellers' appearances that I'd love to hear. Um not the least is desert island discs um oh which he, which he made i think that was 58 can't remember now i think it's about 58 but uh, um, i've got i've got it that, here
1: i've got it here it, february 57
2: 57 okay yeah the good the good thing about that is it that is well documented so we know what records were played and stuff like that but nonetheless i think it was a bit of a sort of landmark so, more so then than now it was a bit of an honor to be invited to appear on it um yeah
1: and we have skipped ahead to fifty seven for this but <laughs> i i have I, I noticed that his his book that he chose was the pickwick papers and i've I, I never had him down as much of a reader I don't know why no. um but his um his luxury item now I would have said he'd have chosen something i don't know driving gloves or something <laughs> something like that but, <laughs> but he went, he went for a snorkel outfit of all things
2: yeah well i think i think he like you know the the, the the trouble is with those sorts of programs especially then you know you're put on the spot and it's not just necessarily what you actually like it's what you ne- might want to be seen to be liking
1: yeah yeah true <laughs> um,
2: and i suspect there were elements of that with tony hancock particularly um so it's hard to say i would agree with you though i wouldn't see him as much of a a reader for reading's sake, and let's face it, based on his his um, working life, I think he was probably too busy. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, rather than anything else, he was just you know, so busy do- doing things you know, and reading scripts. Obviously, um, I find it amazing that he could actually reel off the name of a book in the first <laughs> in the first play. <laughs> it's ironic that um, Harry would go on to
1: make Pickwick famous. Well, famous on the stage, well, yes.
2: Oh yes, yes, it it is actually. It's, um, it's it's a quite a coincidence, really.
1: Yeah, yeah. And sorry, Mark, I, I we've we've digressed, haven't we? But no,
2: no, uh, no, no, no. That that's the good thing about doing this, really, because it, it, as, as things come up, we can uh, sort hmm. of go off at all sorts of happy tangents. Yeah. Um. So back to fifty-four, hmm. and he did a thing called "Me and My Shadows," and it was a serious, unusual idea of. Um, sort of 13, 15-minute programmes, each one presented by an impressionist.
0: This is my show, devised by none other than Fearless Bluebottle, organ-pumped by Bert Bluebottle, written by Bert Blueink Bluebottle, who now introduces the first act, that lightening wick of silent film, cheerful Charlie Cran. <laughs> Gilbert Harding (laughs) Bessie Braddock (laughs) Edith Summerskill
2: (laughs) Well, so much for humor it would be lovely to hear some of the others, actually, because people like Janet Brown and John Pertwee had programmes to themselves as well. Right. Um, so, so in this show, he does lots of Goon show voices, as you would expect. So he's Blue Bottle and Henry Crun, Eccles, Blood Knock, but he also does Raymond Glendenning, a well-known uh, sports commentator, and of course old favourites like Crystal Jolly Bottom and Al K. Traz from Razor Love. But then he got the opportunity the following month to be a disc jockey in Sellers at Your Service Um, when he was, you know, the the, the conceit was that he was the proprietor of a record shop and customers would come in and request things. And obviously that gives him an opportunity to do lots of impressions and then to play records chosen by the people he's he's impersonating. So I should imagine that was pretty good. Um, Similar to the listening
1: room I guess is it
2: yes in a way yes there was talk yes there was talk of it all the time with some of these things oh this should be a series and we should make this and that into a series but it never really happened and I'm not sure to what extent Sellers wanted it to I mean as we've said several times you know he had enough commitments with The Goon Show and Raise a Laugh and, and other stuff not on uh, the radio um, so the last thing he could really do with is another series Having said that, <laughs> he then the following month appeared in something called Paradise Street, um, which was actually was written by Eric Sykes and was a spin off from Educating Archie. Max Bygrave's
1: vehicle, was it? Yes. Right. That's right. Yep.
2: Yeah, well, it was his idea, um, and Eric Sykes turned it into a, a series. Um, and it was all based where Bygraves um, used to live in Rotherhithe, where he grew up. And the idea was that you'd have by walking down the street and pointing out shops and things and then chatting to people. And um, I think Sellers was in a few editions of that. Let me just check. I think he was actually in, um, yeah, about eight different editions of that. Mm. Uh, I think Spike was in it at one time too. I know there's a bit of confusion because I think he was, Spike was supposed to be in it from the beginning. And I think he might have appeared in one or two and then for whatever reason dropped out. Uh, and I think that's probably where Sellers stepped in. So so Sellers was appearing in that, you know, right, f- well, from about the fifth show right to the last one. You know, again, sadly, no no recordings mm. exist. Mm. Uh, but talking of recordings, you know, this is when he went and made another record, EMI, Never Neverland and Dipso Calypso. Yeah, um, yeah which strangely wasn't produced by George Martin, which was unusual. Um, I'm not really sure how that happened, but clearly Jacka and the Flying Saucers wasn't the success that everyone wanted it to be. And um, so the second, uh, this was the the only record that wasn't produced by um, George Martin. (laughs) Who produced that? Um, Wally Ridley. He was another well-known. I mean, everybody in EMI just about was senior to George Martin. George Martin was very young. Yeah, yeah. he was around. Actually, having said that, he was around about the same age as Sellers,
1: um, and, um, he, he, and, I, and he was. And I know why. I, the reason I know that is um, I'm rewatching Get Back. You know the oh, ama- amazing! I've watched it twice myself. Document. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's amazing. But I'm watching it, and I'm 49 now, Mark. Right. And Dick James turns up at one point, and I just looked at how old he would have been. I checked how old he was. A year younger than me. And then I thought, I'm older than everybody who's in this documentary. And I checked George Martin, even uh, a young shaver. He was in his early 40s.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, you look at the Beatles themselves. And um, by the time the Beatles split up, um, they were still very, very young.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say what you like about the Roger Lewis Sellers book. Um, It's a doorstop. In size yes. and and there's a lot of detail. Um, oh yes. Uh, I, I last year I was reading it again and on holiday, and the first it was like it's almost like the first half of the book or the first third of the book. It seems to be focused a lot on letters between Sellers' agent and Patrick Newman. Yes. Yes now patrick newman was he head of radio light entertainment was that his
2: uh i can't remember his job title but Something he was like certainly that. in that yeah. mix yes
1: yeah and it seemed like every other day there was some
2: it was pat are you getting confused with pat hilliard pat, pat hilliard, hilliard. He... yes he was the head of light entertainment i think right. anyway whatever
1: yeah but there's was, there was anyway one of the pats kept getting letters from <laughs> who would it have been dennis Sellinger?
2: Yes. Uh, yes.
1: Seller's agent with some new demand or refusal to do something, or
2: yes, that's right. Yeah. There was
1: always, there was always some slightly prima donna-ish behaviour.
2: Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, and it is it, that that book has got some marvelous research in it. I mean, when you consider that it was sort of pre-internet, really. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of the re- lot of the research would have been done the hard way, and yeah, there's mistakes and things in it, but there's a lot of good facts. Um, in there too Yes um, So as I said we, We're moving on we, we talked about Paradise Street But mm. then Another highlight Of the year Was A radio series We talked briefly About before Called Happy Holiday Oh yeah mm. And that was uh, That took place In the summer And was written By Jimmy Grafton With someone Called Peter Griffiths um, And it was uh, Unusually You might think Now they were 45 minute episodes Um mm. set set in a place called Littleham-on-Sea and actually starred Dennis Price as an entertainment um, officer who had been given the job by the mayor to put the resort on the map. And so, consequently, you can sort of imagine that that's what the whole series would have been about. Um, Alongside Sellers, you had people like Dick Emery, uh, Graham Stark, who seems to have been in almost everything with Sellers. (laughs) um, Yeah, Yeah. Bill Owen... And Elizabeth Lana. Now, if you don't know the name Elizabeth Lana, um, she was actually probably most well known now for having appeared on TV with Frankie Howard in Up Pompeii.
1: Um, uh, oh, was she the mistress or what? Yes. Yes. Call her. Right, okay. <laughs> I think yes. you can picture her, yeah.
0: This is my mistress Ammonia, man mad. Man mad? What? It's no secret. She's known to all the charioteers as Wagoner's Walkover. <laughs> well, we should have to sell something. Oh, really, just Tell me. Just really tell me one single solitary of thing we can. Unless. Ah! Uh-huh. Oh no, Master, please ah. don't sell me. Oh no, Master, please, I beg of you, don't sell me. Oh, God, I don't want to be sold. <laughs> don't sell me, I beg of you. I I haven't finished yet long wedding. <laughs> Don't sell me, I swear, don't sell me! I wasn't going to! Well, all that acting for nothing was he really Oh, really, ludicrous. will have to go. Oh, no, mistress, don't say uh, that. And what's that you've got in your hand?
2: Pardon? Jeez. Oh! But that's... then, again, you know, you, you only have to turn around, and a couple of months later, he's doing another series, this time on television. And it was his first proper TV series um, called And So to Bentley. Mm. Yep. And that's that's an interesting one for lots of reasons. I think recently people have seen more of the rehearsal footage that was thankfully shot by Frank Muir in the studio. So you, although the programmes don't exist anymore, you get a feel for the sets and what went on. Um, and it's colour as well. And, oh, yeah, and it's marvellous. And the, the thing is, it was sort of like a cross between a, ske- a sort of a TV comedy and a um, variety show. And I think that may have been done that way just for the convenience of doing it. And, they, and having checked on some of these things, they seem to rehearse them to death. You know, they, 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 To start with, I think it was only on once a fortnight, probably because they couldn't rehearse enough of it in a week. But um, the other interesting thing is you is I always think, well, how did Sellers get into this? Why, why was it Sellers? And I think it's a, probably a combination of the fact that um, Frank Muir and Dennis Norden got together because they were both... Each of them was writing. One was writing for Dick Bentley, and the other one was writing for Jimmy Edwards. Mm. And they both got together and ended up writing for both, I think. But, of course, Muir and Northern knew Sellers, and Dick Bentley New Sellers because um, he was in... Uh, Sellers was in a show called New to You, which Dick Bentley was the compere <laughs> That's of. That's right, um, in forty eight. Yeah. yeah, so... There was a connection there, and I think, you know, that always helps in any sphere of work. If, you, if you're looking for somebody, you say, well, that guy over there, he's pretty good, and he can he's adaptable, and he can do this, and he can do that, we'll take him. It's much easier to do that. Mm. Um, so I suspect something like that may have happened. And then to crown it all, at the end of the year, um, he was um, in November at the Royal Variety Performance at the London Palladium. Almost immediately after that, uh, the following month, He was then cast in Mother Goose at the London Palladium again, um, Uh which which ran from December till March the following year. Because I think a lot of people forget that in those days, that's what happened with pantomimes. They didn't just run a week or two up to Christmas or something. They ran into the spring.
1: Um, Yeah, that amazes me. Uh, There must have been an audience, otherwise they wouldn't do it. uh,
2: I think some of it was to do with the fact that it was the West End of London, and right. uh, okay. probably didn't happen elsewhere. Yeah. But obviously, you know, you've got people who can travel in and, and, and all that sort of thing. So, as you say, they clearly managed to fill the house. I mean, the, the London Palladium holds about 3,000 people. Mm. Um, so, you know, if you do some quick maths, which I can't, um, yeah. <laughs> you, you'd soon find out you're into thousands and thousands of people that must have actually seen that show. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. And, of course, it's um, it's, it's during this that, that he appears on that Hancock episode that we covered a few weeks ago yes
2: he was incredibly busy running running across to the BBC to knock out a quick performance for Hancock's half- hour and it's a good one at, at, at 11 o'clock at night as well <laughs> yes yeah and it's it's just it's just amazing and I, I I may have said this to you on the previous show that I appeared on but um life on the road you know it can't have been much fun i mean it sounds very exciting and obviously when you're a young man it it, it is you know you get to go places and do things and see things and all that sort of thing but you're all probably especially in those days eating all the wrong food yeah um i don't think he was particularly a drinker um he what he did smoke and he did drink but i don't think he did any of that to excess um no more than anybody else um so but it, it clearly those sorts of things must take their toll because you're you know, every night practically you're sleeping in a strange bed in a town you'd rather not be in. Yeah. Um. And what it what always occurs to me is, what do you do all day? Mm. You know, because all these appearances and performances, like the live stuff, was always you know a matinee or an evening performance. And so you've got the whole day. Yes, you might have to sleep in late, but you've got the whole day to wander around the town and do do stuff. I suppose. I mean, you might have hung out with some of the other performers and things like that. Yeah. Um, But it's not much, I wouldn't have thought it's much of a life really And I know it got him down, well we're heading towards it really Because by 1956 he'd almost stopped doing all that Uh, He'd had a basin full of it really I think anyway And I don't think he was really that naturally cut out to be that type of performer He could do it, he could definitely do it uh, And he did and very successfully in the early days But it soon wore thin um, because of the repetition that was uh, required, if nothing else, mm. and he must have got very bored very quickly. Um, well, 50, so, fifty-five was the Lady Killers. S- yes, yeah. I mean, so. that's you know that's an important um, that's an important turning point really for, for Sellers. You know, not not perhaps so much at the time because although the film was very successful, he didn't get lots of work as a as a result of it. Um, mm. But it started him on the road, you know, because he was doing he was doing those three films that he did, the short films, Cold Comfort and the others, yeah. around that time, and The Lady Killers and John and Julie. So so 55, again he's doing Raise a Laugh and he's doing well, Ted Ray Time, actually. Um he's doing the Goon show and he and he's doing this panto. Actually, some of the panto was broadcast, but again it doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Um, which is very sad. He did some more general variety like a program called calling miss courtnage which was again another variety show this time fronted by cicely courtnage and um, we mentioned hancock's half hour Um, but then he got into something called starstruck which is very interesting it was bob monkhouse and dennis goodwin's radio series now monkhouse and goodwin were pretty much just as big as muir and norton if not bigger in a way yeah monkhouse particularly was a performer in a way that Muir and Norden weren't. So he was writing for himself and he was writing for other people. They had a phenomenal uh, rate of, of uh, producing scripts, Monkhouse and Goodwin. Incredible. So he Sellers appeared for the first time in Starstruck in May and he did about six editions of it and he was in lots of sketches. The good news is thanks to Bob Monkhouse, all of these shows still exist. And um, which is marvellous. I mean, you know, hats off to Bob Monkhouse. I think, you know, he he was much derided over the years for being smarmy and all those things that we heard many, many many times. And maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. It's Mm. a matter of opinion. Mm. Um, But he's become a bit of a hero for me uh, because, if nothing else, just the fact that he recorded so much material, not all of it his own, and a lot of things now survive on tv and radio thanks to his personal dedication to recording things yes Um, yes so this is around the same time that the goons cut their disc unchained melody and dance with me henry Mm. so that's just kind of putting it all in focus that was all around about the same time yeah and then Mm. um so he's doing more variety shows so more workers playtime more variety playhouse um the sixth series of the goon show started in september and then, of course, the ill-fated or famous or infamous six-week run at the Coventry Hippodrome, yeah. where the goons appeared nightly, and then went straight into filming the case of the Muckanese Battlehorn. So, again, a better film than Down Among the Men, but still a great period piece to get to see them, you know, in 55 um, at the height of their powers, if you like, but actually get to see them rather than just hear them. Yep. I think the film's... Were always disappointing compared with the Goon Show, and even even the Fred shows, which there are some marvelous pieces, and it's very much ahead of its time. um, You know, pales into insignificance compared with the Goon Show itself. It was never quite, never quite pulled it off. But I think some of that is to do with just the technology that was available at the time to be able to do the things that the Goons would have liked to be able to have done on TV. Yeah. No. Absolutely
0: the matter of season. You That's know. right. In there. In you go. In you go he had some very interesting things to say. Of course, you are. I mean, it's awful. Oh, well, gentlemen, when you're ready, I think our friends are with us. Yes,
2: already? So we mentioned the listening room. I mean, that was that was sort of towards the end of the year and is is now famous for the fact that it was uh, featured a very early rendition of i'm walking backwards for christmas mm-hmm. so then we're into 56 now as i as i mentioned um it was at the start of 56 really that sellers gave up touring uh he'd had enough of it um but also his time was becoming more important to focus on things like television and film and the lady killers was obviously a turning point for him, but it wasn't the only one where he was thinking, look, if I'm, I've now got my foot in the door. I really need to be doing more of this. And I really need to make myself available for doing more of this. And the one thing that he could afford to give up with ease was touring. So he did two more dates, uh, one in Wolverhampton and one in Norwich, and that was it. Okay. Having said that, he continued to perform, but it was always one-off charity things, that sort of thing. He'd never do he'd never tour the country again. Right, yeah. Um, so, and I think it wasn't a moment too soon. He did some more work on um, a second series of Starstruck. And, of course, 56, like 55 in a way, but 56 was a very important goon's year uh, because not only was it the start of things like, you know, the Fred shows and all all, the, all of that stuff, but they were also recording all their Decca hits um, mm. the same year. Mm-hmm. But the next important thing on the radio was Finkel's Cafe. Ah, yes. Finkel's Caf, mm. which was, again, another Muir and Norden. Um, and he was in, I, th- I think there were only nine of them, actually, but he was in all of all nine anyway. But it, that was very much based on an American thing called Duffy's Tavern, yep. um, which was set in New York's Third Avenue. But that ran a long time on American radio. Um, that ran from 42 to 51. And they had made a film of it, which also included Bing Crosby. Mm. And then it ran on TV for 38 episodes in 1954. So when you know that, it's not a total surprise that somebody wanted to take it and adapt it because it had already been successful. So why wouldn't it be successful in Britain? Um,
1: I've said this before on the show, and I'm just trying to remember where it came from. But I think Spike is on record as citing a character in Duffy's Tavern as a possible influence on the Eccles voice.
2: Yes, yes, I I remember that too. Yes, I think you're right. Mm. But it was obviously, I mean, again, it's hard to imagine, but it was obviously a big deal in America. Mm. Um, um, And obviously things didn't translate so well and so quickly as they might do today. But, you know, it's an idea and they took the basic premise and adapted it to take place in Soho. And so Sellers played Eddie, who was an Irish... Uh, um, manager of the cafe and then Sid James played the cafe's waiter called Harry Uh, Mm. Kenneth Connor was in it too which is interesting Um, people like Avril Angers who again she was very big at the time and the ubiquitous Graham Stark um, occurred in it from time to time as did Irene Handel and, and a number of others so it sounds like it might have been a fun series. So they had they had guests in it like Gilbert Harding, Katie Boyle, Dennis Price, mm. Robert Beattie, uh, Dickie Valentine, all sorts of people, names at the time. So each week they'd have a different guest and they'd be a customer who'd come in and then they'd start talking around that. Once again, unfortunately, none of those exist. Yeah, um, it's a shame that, Which, which yeah. is a shame. Um, I mean, the good news with all of these programmes, pretty much all of them, is the scripts are all still there. It's a laborious job going through a script, and it's obviously very flat compared with hearing a performance. But you can get a little bit of a flavour of some of the interplay between some of the characters by going through the scripts, but it is a laborious job. Sure. Then he got involved in a thing called Curiouser and Curiouser. Mm. Now, that's an interesting one, and he recorded various inserts. Basically what this was, it was a series of um, six anthologies of anglo-american offbeat humor um milligan was also in it i don't think they were in it together but um again sellers recorded a number of pieces over a period of two or three months so you could easily pop in the studio do a bit then come back again do another bit and some of those excerpts are in one of the uh, Goon show compendium sets so thankfully that has survived yep um, it's not the whole programmes though; it's only the pieces. But the the, the pieces are fascinating mm. um, because you get to hear sellers doing all sorts of different voices according to um, uh, according to the piece. So, and one piece is uh, one piece is from Nicholas Nickleby, for example. Oh, written by his favourite author. <laughs> <laughs> of course, yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's probably why he did it. I hadn't thought of that actually, but yes. Mm. But he, interestingly, in that the, the voice he uses is very much like the character he used in the Gerard Hoffnung Birds, Bees, and Stalks animation. Oh, same sort of voice. okay, yep. And he's in that with Beryl Reid, and uh, they work quite well together. There's another one that I particularly love, uh, which is called Mr. Preble Gets Rid of His Wife by James Thurber, hmm. and uh, he's in that with Miriam Carlin, who he appeared in. Um, he appeared with, in Variety, Bandbox a couple of times, so it's nice to hear them working together. Um, But if you haven't heard it, I recommend that. I love that piece, because I love black comedy, and it's very much black comedy. Let's go
0: down in the cellar. What for? Oh, I don't know. We never go down in the cellar anymore the way we used to. We never did go down the cellar that I remember. I could rest easy the balance of my life if I never went down the cellar. Well, suppose I said it meant a whole lot to me. What's come over you? It's cold down there and there's absolutely nothing to do. Oh, we could pick up pieces of coal. We might get up some kind of game with pieces of coal. I don't want to. Anyway, I'm reading. You can read down there as far as that goes. There isn't a good enough light down there. And anyway, I'm not going to go down to this cellar. You may as well make up your mind to that. Gee whiz other people's wives go down in the cellar? Why is it you never want to do anything? I come home worn out from the office and you won't even go down the cellar with me. God knows it isn't very far. It isn't as if I was asking you to go to the movies or someplace. I don't want to go. All right, all right.
2: Again, we we talked about the Fred shows and as a direct result of the Fred shows, Sellers and Graham Stark got invited to Canada, which was his first overseas professional engagement, to appear on a TV show called the Chrysler Festival. That's interesting. Again, it was a a variety show. He was doing, if if I remember rightly, he was doing his um, Richard III, and I think they did a couple of other bits and pieces that they'd done in the Fred shows, but it all went down very, very well. Um, And unlike a lot of the material from this period for TV, this actually still exists in the uh, Canadian Broadcasting Company's archives. I right. haven't seen it. I'd love to see it. Mm. If anyone listening to this knows how to get it... <laughs> That's intriguing, isn't it? Let us know, yeah. I mean, it's a mm. full-blown variety show. It was actually one of about half a dozen or maybe more. Um, a bit like... I imagine it to be a bit like Sunday Night at the London Palladium or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but it would be a joy to see it. Um so by fifty-seven, fifty-seven, with the exception of the Goon Show, now Sellers is really he's on TV, um, but he really isn't on the radio anymore. Um, he's now in six editions of Yes, it's the Cathode Ray Tube Show. We'll talk about that.
1: Oh yeah, of course. Mm.
2: Um, uh, as, as I mentioned, as we mentioned, he did do um, Desert Island Discs, which is also missing. Um, he's still popped into various radio variety programmes, Calling the Stars, Piers Parade, Stars on Parade. But as I said before, these were one-offs and they were becoming rarer and rarer. I'm still not sure about this, but I've got evidence that he may have appeared in Educating Archie in 1957, which went out on the 1st of oh. January, 58. Oh. Uh, but I can't corroborate that. So, yeah, so by 58... Um, Obviously, 57 he's filming, he's filming Tom Thumb and Up the Creek and more and more and more, as you would expect. Um, by 58, um, he's he's doing other live appearances like the one that he, he did for the uh, with the other goons, the Royal Tiddly Winks Tournament, yeah. which did appear on the radio and a recording of that still exists. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Just going back to 57 briefly, um, yeah. the next show out is going to be, or Goon Pod is going to be, uh, me and a guest talking about The Smallest Show on Earth. Oh, the, lovely. The, the wonderful film that he made in 57. yeah. Uh, and I was just doing, as part of the research, I was look just looking at, you know, and BBC Genome is fantastic results. Oh, it is.
2: It's got better and better.
1: Yeah. Um, and I noticed that on the light programme, uh, a couple of months after the film was released, there was a half hour, like a condensed... Adaptation of the smallest show on earth, and from what I could see, they included the soundtrack or parts of the soundtrack of the movie. Oh, um, so I'm not sure if there was someone sort of linking each bit, if you know what I mean. I'm assuming so, but
2: I'll I'll take a look at that. I'll I'll, I'll have a, have to look at my own notes as well, but I don't think I was aware of that.
1: Yeah, so I don't know whether that was a common thing for the for the light program. It- I don't, I don't know. know it might
2: it might have been because I mean I know they they obviously did film review programs and stuff like that mm. and played clips and of course it's in, it was in the interest of the film company to help them as much as they could give them soundtrack material let them use it and all that kind of stuff because it's all free publicity for the movie mm. so um, yeah. and I know for instance not in this case but I'm, I don't know if I told you before but I discovered evidence that the f- you know Sellers was so enthusiastic about getting into the film business that in um 55, 56, when The Lady Killers was released, he did a small tour of London cinemas dressed in character, presenting the film. Oh, Um, okay. And, you know, doing just mucking about with the crowd outside and on stage afterwards and stuff like that. I I don't think he was necessarily committed to doing it, but he clearly wanted to, rather like the recording that he made doing all the characters, yep. and I think he was so caught up that at last he was getting into a sensible film, that he just got carried away with it, and um, yeah, he did about half a dozen cinemas I think, in, in London, around about the time of release, so obviously that had stopped by this time, but uh, usually what would happen in those days, you'd get some glamorous girl or something who'd been in the movie, you know, signing autographs and just standing there looking gorgeous, and they weren't used to seeing some scruffy <laughs> some scruffy uh, spiv character uh, turning up with a violin case or, what, or yeah. whatever. <laughs> anyway, yeah. the eighth series of the Goon Show started in September, and in November, this is '57. In November, he'd started work on Up the Creek and then worked on Tom
1: Thumb.
2: Hmm. Uh, and of course, by that time, <laughs> if he wasn't busy enough, this is when they started doing two Goon shows at once.
1: Yeah, yeah, yep.
2: So you know, you got the transcription services thing going on as well, and he's doing all this filming. I mean, it's just, you know, how he'd find time to learn lines, let alone read a book for, <laughs> for Desert Island Discs, I've no idea.
1: Let alone have children.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. um, so, 58, you know, obviously television and films were now dominating his time. And uh, he was filming Carlton Brown of the FO. And, uh, but then to make matters worse, um, he decides to go and do brouhaha. Oh, yeah. Hmm. So, you know, that just sort of I mean, that's a podcast on its own,
1: yeah, I think. I think that um, is.
2: Um and, and one where you might want to have more than one person. You might want to have two or three people, because I think it 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 probably deserves it in terms of the antics that occurred. And it wasn't just it wasn't just Bruhar, because he was doing all sorts of other things at the same time, which is what helped to make it worse. Instead of focusing on one one thing, you know, he's filming, he's making records, he's doing all sorts of things. And then he's, re- he's also recording uh, a thing called Roundabout, which was a radio series hosted by David Jacobs. Um, he was recording snippets uh, under the title From Our Own Cellars uh, to go into that, hmm. um, and doing the Mouse That Roared. So by the end of the year, you know he must have just been getting run ragged with all of this. And so although he still loved the Goon Show, as they all did. Even that, I should imagine, was starting to wear thin. And that's when they really, I think, wanted to bring The Goon Show to an end, as we know, mm. um, in 59. Because it, it's crazy. He was, he was filming I'm All Right, Jack. Then he did Battle of the Sexes. Then Two Way Stretch and the Running and Jumping Standing Still film. And doing a follow-up to Best of Sellers, Song for Swinging Sellers. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: and by the end of the year, he was working on Never Let Go. And that's all in one year. Yeah, jeez. And doing The Goon Show and <laughs> Jeez. so uh, it's no surprise um that uh, as i say radio is increasingly uh coming to an end which it really did by by 1960 especially once the last goon show um you know the last uh, the last smoking sea uh season sea had gone out
1: yeah which is uh, Jan- january isn't it january 1960 yeah so. but
2: by the time that had gone out that was really it Match, (laughs) Nere.
0: No, no, he's a cigarette.
1: (laughs) Yes, that was it, the last of them. So, by now.
2: And I can't, th- I, I, I can check, but I can't think of any occasion after that where he actually perfe- appeared doing a scripted performance. But, apart from no the, doubt, apart he,
1: the last Goon Show of all, of course, but that doesn't really count.
2: From, apart from that, mm. yeah. Mm. Which I must admit, I'm very pleased to say, after all these years, I've actually managed to get myself a copy of the programme. Uh, from oh, the last Lord, nice. show of all, yeah which uh, yeah. I applied for tickets. I think this is my, my my famous story which I might have told you before. I applied for tickets to go and see that and um, but I reckon that uh, Princess Anne got mine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes anyway but so you know so so he'd had I think in summary he'd had a really good run as a radio performer from 1948 all the way through the rest of the 40s and the 50s and just nudging into the 60s Mm. and to start with um as we covered in the last part of this uh you couldn't stop him you couldn't hold him back he was just everywhere like a rash and it didn't really slow down that much um until the television work and the film work started and then he realized that that was to be his priority for the really for the rest of his career
1: yeah yeah
2: wonderful well,
1: just before, uh, before we wrap up or as we wrap up, um, uh, again, I think I asked you this a year ago when we, when we last spoke, the book, the, this massive book that you're working on or have worked on or have completed. Well, no,
2: the, I think what I really need from this moment on is a good literary agent and ultimately a publisher who's sympathetic to what we're trying to do with um, Peter Sellers' career story that is really unlike anything else that I'm, I'm aware of in print. Um, and so uh, if anyone knows of anybody who's interested either in publishing or representing me as an author, I'd be delighted to hear from
1: them. That'd be brilliant, yeah. So anyone, anyone listening, if you can, assist in some way. I mean, I'd love, I would love to read this book. It's basically going to be <laughs> covering everything Sellers ever did from radio tv film to shopping for underpants i'm sure um so if anyone can help uh or 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 suggest help or suggest uh, a way of getting this this mighty book uh in the bookshops then please let me know that'd be that'd be fantastic and um and mark listen wonderful to have you on as always thank you for all your support and uh and we will speak again in the future
2: great pleasure to be here tyler keep up the good work i enjoy it every week it's tremendous well done
1: thanks again to mark and as i said i'll be back next week with um chris diamond again chris was uh, on earlier in the year right at the beginning of the year talking about the ghost and the noonday sun and the follow-up documentary the ghost of peter sellers which which was really well received that the uh, that, that, that sort of double episode if you like chris is back next week with me to talk about the smallest show on earth the 1957 romp with peter sellers margaret rutherford and uh bernard miles um so yeah that's gonna be a double episode as well because chris and i talked for the best part of two and a half hours so uh look forward to that in the meantime take care of yourselves see you soon bye